Welcome to The Pestle, reviewing and breaking down movies to look for insights into the movie-making process. Hosted by Artificial Intelligence, I for one welcome the new robot overlords. Let's dim the lights and start the show. Welcome everybody to The Pestle. Today's show is brought to you by Allez-Vous. Make up to 600k per year scamming your friends with Allez-Vous. Welcome everyone to The Pestle. I am Wes. And I am Todd. And we're filmmakers, actors, uh, we do a lot behind and in front of the camera, and we use all of that knowledge to discuss films and say what they're doing well, how they work, how they operate, uh, and maybe sometimes where they fall short, what they could have done differently. It's all fun and interesting ways to uh, look at the things that we've been doing in our entire life, which is watching movies and TV shows. Um, and so I always have a really good time. Uh, learning through this process. I've learned so much as a filmmaker. I feel like I've grown so much as a filmmaker from just studying films. Um, I, I've, I feel like I've heard, or at least we've said, uh, the best education you can get is just a Netflix account, right? Like uh, watching other work and and seeing what they're doing, how it's operating uh, can be so m- as much informative as, you know, anything else you're going to do. Uh, it's the best test kitchen there is, um, other people's, you know, works. Um, and of course going out and making your own stuff, which we do as well. Um, I think that's the other proposition value that we're bringing to the table is, uh, we are creators. We go and we, we make, you know, films, whether that's short films, music videos, uh, corporate projects, right. We know what it's like to be on just a payday, right. As well as commercials. We've done plenty of commercials and ads and all kinds of things. And we use all of that knowledge as, uh, an insightful journey into films. Yeah. What, uh, journey are we going on today, man? Today we are covering the new mission impossible dead reckoning part one. So if you haven't seen it, please pause this episode, go to the, it's in the theater right now. It just came out. Maybe if you're listening to this later on, maybe it's streaming. I don't know, but go watch it. Cause we're going to spoil a bunch of stuff. Yeah, we're going to look at a ton of stuff, mostly within story and writing. Uh, Definitely want to look at some of the motivated storytelling, the ways they use exposition. I feel like you can't talk Mission Impossible without talking about action. Um, So we'll look at some of the action sequences. Uh, We'll talk about consequential chases and other such stuff and things and stuff. And a quick synopsis of the film, Ethan Hunt and his IMF team must track down a dangerous weapon before it falls into the wrong hands. Directed by Christopher McQuarrie, uh, written by Eric Gendrison and Christopher McQuarrie. Cinematography by Fraser Taggart. It's featuring Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, Bing Rames as Luther, Simon Pegg as Benji, Rebecca Ferguson as Ilsa, Haley Atwell as Grace, Vanessa Kirby as the White Widow, Asai Morales as Gabriel, Palm Kleimantife, Kleiman, yep, sure, uh, as Paris. Shay Wingham as Briggs and Henry Cerny as Kittredge. Nice. No clip. Every clip that is out about this movie is a behind the scenes of action. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Right. Because <laughs> that's what people want to see. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, I, there's I a bunch nothing. of squealing wheels and <laughs> yeah, stuff. <that's> right. yeah. <laughs> Explosions in your ears. Um, so I can do that, you know, manually for everyone if, if they'd prefer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so Todd, uh, this is like Mission Impossible part, I don't know, six. Uh, we're we're, At we're least. deep in the cuts. Um, and what do you think, man? I, I, I'm curious, one, what you want when you show up to a Mission Impossible film and how this movie itself landed for you. Did it deliver those things um, or, or what? Yeah, I, th- I think so for me, Mission Impossible is all about action. It's all about the weight and consequence of decisions and stuff. But it's also, it's kind of like a sign of the times, right? Whatever the bad guy is trying to do is prevalent for that time. And which is, it's interesting. I think if you go back and you, and you look, there's probably some kind of correlation with what was happening. Maybe, maybe like either in the world or, you know, in society at the time or something. And they, they bake that into the script usually, or like, you know, sometimes they try to, in this case, they, it's like on the nose, what the, you know, the issue is. So, but when I go into these movies, what I'm looking for is to be entertained from the beginning to the end. And, and, and I mean, <laughs> I forgive a lot of stuff. Like I'll forgive exposition 
for the sake of it. I'll forgive, you know, maybe not the best acting by ancillary characters. I'll forgive, you know, a little bit of of writing in order to get our characters to a certain place so that they can fight or something. I'll forgive a lot of stuff because what I'm what I'm there to do is to is to let the world go and to be in this critical world where you have one man between, you know, between the bad guy and the end of the world and, you know, us, nobody knowing that that even happened. And that's a it's fun because that's a place where none of us will ever be. You know, we can sit safely in our in our seats and watch this guy put himself in peril for two and a half hours and come out unscathed. Right. That's what I want when I go into a Mission Impossible film. And that's what they've always delivered. It's it's always been that way. You, I mean, you go in, whether whether one is, you know, the best one or one is the worst one, it, you're getting the same thing, right? And you're getting to watch Tom Cruise do these incredible stunts that are really mind-blowing. I mean, from hanging outside of planes as they take off to, you know, jumping across, you know, crevasses and buildings, rooftops and stuff. And uh, to skydiving, a motor- right. yeah, skydiving, yes, yes, halo jumping, yeah, to which, oh my god, that was, yeah, to uh, to riding a motorcycle off a cliff, you know, and 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 uh, cliff jumping, and and you, you know, you kind of sign up for that. Like, I feel like it, without that kind of stuff, without his complete and and dedication and the promotion of his dedication, these movies would be boring. That's what I feel like. I feel like what I'm knowing that that is Tom Cruise that jumped out of that plane at, you know, 35,000 feet is amazing. And I'm watching it with my mouth open, knowing that that's him. This is, this is, you know, you know, he makes what, $25 million a movie or something, maybe more. And then, and he's going to be the, and he won't shoot it unless he's doing this thing. He's doing the stunt. That's amazing. Uh, so anyway, that's what I want when I go into a movie like this. Um, and that's what I got, you know, it was action literally from the beginning to the end, the parts where there wasn't action, you, you still felt like something important was happening. I loved, I actually really loved the bad guy being AI. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, we have, you know, we have Gabriel who's, you know, the, the bad guy, but he's the minion now. Now Gabriel is the, he's just following orders from the bad guy who is AI. I think that that's uh, great. I think it's, I don't think that any, I haven't seen a film that's done that yet, you know, where it, you never actually see the bad guy, you know, it's this box or this, you know, cage inside of a submarine at the bottom of the ocean. Great way to start it. You know, I thought, so anyway, I, I enjoyed it. You know, it was very much a popcorn movie. You know, I feel like I feel like, you know, if I went and watched it again, there's probably things that I would that I would pick out and it'd probably like it a little bit more the second time I'd see it. But the, all of the action is, I mean, top notch. I don't think you could <laughs> I don't know how you could do action any better than this. I mean, it's so, so good. It reminded me. Uh, well, Probably the Bournes were were mm. pretty good at that, but that was all really close up stuff. You know, like whenever he's fighting and stuff, it's like super close where you don't really know what's happened. It's 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 almost more about where the camera is and how fast the cuts were than it was about what was happening, yeah. which is still amazing. But in this case, it was more grandiose. So even if he had close up shots like in the car as it's doing donuts, trying to get away from a Hummer, right? It, it's you're seeing it's a lot of times it's a two shot. Right. You're seeing both of both the female Tom and was it Grace? Yeah. Yeah. In the car, instead of it being like right up on Tom's face, we're seeing both of them in the car. And so it's not such a close up. And so we're kind of like experiencing like a larger world almost. Yeah. And obviously, you know, Haley Atwell is like easy on the eyes and just an incredible actor. Uh, yeah. So I enjoyed it. I thought it was a lot of fun. I'm curious what you think. I'm I'm excited for her finally. I've I've never really known if how good she is or isn't um because I feel like she hasn't had those opportunities. Right. And I've just never dug into her library like that. Um and so the most exposure I've really had to her is, you know, the Marvel stuff that she did. 
And so it's one of those like, does she have the goods? I mean, it seems like she probably does. But getting, I, I really love that she's getting a chance through this series uh, to to hopefully blow up and have other opportunities. Because if she's a great dramatic actress, I'd love to you know see her get those opportunities um, and play in the sandbox more with someone like a Vanessa Kirby, um, who's all world. She's still so underutilized Vanessa Kirby. Oh yeah. Um, like it's, it's painful to me that she's only playing white widow. Like she should be headlining a list films, the biggest stuff for the biggest directors. But I was a little cooler on this than you. I think I can't stop having my wants. <laughs> I don't know how to tamp down my desires when I walk into a film because I do want, you know, a, a film that has a little more meat on the bones and watching this, it became pretty obvious pretty quick that they just, they didn't have anything in the tank. It was just one excuse to get into another sequence, you know, after another. And so I, I was bored for a, a good chunk of the movie because I felt like most of what was happening was pointless. Like I, it, it was one step away from being on the truck with an Amazon delivery guy, just kind of running <laughs> to and fro. Uh, and I was just like, what, why are we doing this? Um, well, someone ordered the package and we got to go, we got to go get it. <laughs> like, okay. And so uh, that's just, which is unfortunate because I thought it had a, a pretty strong opening. Like that whole thing with the submarine was so good. Um, and it really set the, uh, the tone for, you know, a really good villain. Um, and I have a lot of thoughts on that to come, but I mean, that's kind of my, my, my bottom line is it's a really bad use of runtime for me. Um, and I think there's a number of ways they could have done it differently with the same concepts, the same, you know, ideas, the same bad guys, same characters. I don't think you had to move a lot of things around in order to make a much more, impactful uh film but that said like i i'll just dive in and jump in as as you have thoughts or ideas of course but i'll i'll start with this the the good stuff which was the action my favorite personally my favorite moment in the movie uh was the car crash with grace like in in rome she's trying to escape and she has ethan hunt outside the window on the motorcycle right um and I just know Tom Cruise geeks out anytime he gets to grab a motorcycle because he is like an expert uh, motorcyclist. Um, and then, you know, she gets cleaned, right? Uh, uh, Paris, played by Palm, you know, sideswipes her and just spins her out. And that little two, three second sequence where she gets hit, the audio cuts out, she spins around. It felt so kinetic and so real that I was I was kind of worried about Haley Atwell. I was like, is, is she okay? Um, it was like well, an also incredible... her hair flop. Like I remember her hair like slam her head. You see her head slam into the steering wheel and the and the airbag go off and her hair fly everywhere. And that's you're right, so dynamic and it makes you like sit back in your chair. Yeah, yeah. I was freaked. I was like, that's an incredible. That was one of those heart stopping moments. Uh, of the entire film, that was the moment for me that just made me freeze in my seat. Like I had a handful of popcorn. I was like, uh, <laughs> what do I do? <laughs> um, and so I love that moment so much. Uh, and really the whole chase sequence throughout Rome is great. Um, I think it's the right mix of humor, drama, and eye-popping moments. Um, also really love the, I thought it was a really great setup and, and slow payoff of the paperclip right? The little handcuff gag, uh, that they set up in the office and she sneaks away the, the paperclip off her, one of her mini passports. And I love it because they set it up in a whole other context from what it actually gets used. And so by the time she escapes and holds up the paperclip, you're like, crap, I forgot all about the paperclip because it felt like it was supposed to be used ages ago. And, and so I just, I thought that was a really clever sleight of hand, um, by the writers, like just to, to introduce it and then use it in 
a, a whole other sequence. Uh, just beautiful, beautiful st- storytelling. Uh, and of course, when they hold it up, you're like, yeah, okay, yeah, I forgot. I, I, I remember that. Like, there's probably a lot of people that was like, I was waiting for that. Like, you were waiting for that 10 minutes ago. You forgot about that, MFR. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, the other thing I really love in that sequence is um, uh, Paris. I thought Palm Clementif as Paris was awesome. Uh, she plays an excellent psycho killer henchman. Oh yeah. Um, and, and for me, that was my favorite character of the entire movie bar none, literally bar none. Um, I, I thought she was great and she did it all without dialogue. She did it all through her physical acting, um, the frustration, the excitement, right. When she's like plowing over those scooters, like she gets really into it and she's like loving hitting things. And, um, it's all just physical acting, uh, and I talking about Haley Atwell, same thing with Palm. Like I've been waiting for her to have a breakout, uh, away from Mantis, you know, in the Marvel films. Like I love her as that character, but she clearly has more in the tank for me. I've, I've been waiting for her to have some moments and hopefully this is just another avenue for her to actually get into some dramatic normal roles. Cause she keeps playing these heightened characters, which she's incredible at. Uh, but I just have the feeling based on, if you can do the kind of humor that she does and the kind of character acting that she does, I know she's got more in the tank. Um, and maybe she just loves action. That's all she wants to do. Fine. But if I could beg her and her manager to like bring her into other roles, I just know she's, she belongs in like a David Fincher film. Like I just know it in my heart. Uh, and so I, I really hope that she gets those opportunities. Um, the other thing with that character, Paris, I felt like, her white face paint towards the end felt like maybe it was a Blade Runner callback. Mm. You know, this whole film being about AI run amok. Uh, I feel like they were trying to introduce all of these kind of interesting little callbacks or other, other films, other concepts. Um, and I felt like that was maybe one thing that they were calling back to was uh, Blade Runner and like Daryl Hannah's character in, in Blade Runner. Um, and so that, if so, cool. If not, I'm going there anyway. <laughs> I don't care. I um, uh, there in with callbacks, it felt like there was a lot of Mission Impossible One, like the original De Palma version. Felt like there was a lot of callbacks. I'm not going to go into detail because in my mind, that eventually we'll come back to that one and we'll we'll cover that one. But there's a whole bridge scene with Grace Nilsa that felt like a callback. Uh, to the opening, the the bullet train fight sequence felt like a callback. And so there's a lot of things that I feel like they're doing little hat tips to Mission Impossible fans throughout the film. I will say, as far as action goes, the bike jump parachute felt a little weak to me. Like on the screen, it felt a bit weak. And I think they did the best thing possible. The best use out of that was the promotion <laughs> like showing all the, the 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 insanity that actually went into such an incredibly mundane stunt on on screen and i think maybe the better way 10 years from now someone's going to watch this movie for the first time uh without any knowledge about that scene they're going to think okay and and it's not going to occur to them that that was a dangerous scene at all <laughs> yeah um as opposed to whenever i watched fallout I didn't know the halo jump was, was real, but it still made me lean up. Like I didn't know about the, I didn't, I don't watch a lot of behind the, you know, just my own spoiler alert here. I don't watch any of that stuff, guys. <laughs> like I don't, I'm not aware of that. It doesn't wind me up at all. Uh, if, if Todd and Scott don't send it to me, I don't see it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and so I wasn't aware of the halo jump as like a real thing. But when that mo- moment came in the movie, I was like, Holy, how did they do that? Like I was baffled <laughs> because it was so good and then of course i realized later like oh they did it by doing it oh well that's a clever way <laughs> to, to save some bucks i guess um and this film i was like ah the the parachute thing was kind of weak and i think if anything they oversold it like they do this extra cut where you watch them do the jump twice oh yeah right and it felt like maybe they're they're begging a little bit for everyone to see how cool this is and I think maybe it's better used as a throwaway. Just throw it away uh, a little bit more. Play it down. Um, throw it away whenever I say it and whatever, whenever I think of that concept. It's, you know, if someone's throwing away a line, right? 
they're they're saying something significant like i am your father kind of thing you know maybe don't say it maybe maybe don't like squeeze it for all it's worth you know like hey i'm your dad like i mean that that's a terrible way to to use that particular you know idea but that's kind of what you're saying is like you know you you tried to kill me and it's like you could just say it like that you tried to kill me or you can like really milk it you tried to kill me like and there's drama both ways but each has its own kind of different impact based on the story you're trying to tell. In this case, I'm thinking the parachute jump, we all already knew. And the more you try to convince us that this is a really cool thing, the less convincing it becomes. Whereas mm-hmm. if you just throw it away, suddenly we're, we're like, Oh my God, like this is all actually happening. And um, you feel less inclined to, to lean away from like, yeah, I, I get it. Uh, yeah. Maybe- imagine if you didn't know that that was going to happen. Right. And then you saw it, right? So it's like they didn't promote that stunt and then you saw it. And knowing that Tom Cruise does, I mean, mm-hmm. like assuming you know that Tom Cruise does all his own stunts uh, and then you see that happen and you're like, oh, you know, what? You know, because I also I also think, and I'm I'm guilty of this, like I don't realize because I've never done it how dangerous cliff jumping really is. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's, I've heard the most dangerous thing you can do like on or like one of the most dangerous things you there's a lot of dangerous things you can do on the planet (laughs) but like one of the most dangerous things you can do you know because wind gusts can knock you into the into the mountain and all this stuff and but you know to us we're just sitting comfortably eating popcorn in our seats and watching that happen just makes it look easy right and but we're you're also thinking because you don't know and you haven't done it well he's he's you know like he's not 30,000 feet in the air you know you think volume or like most of us think volume of space of like Mm -hmm. height is more danger well not necessarily because the dangerous part about jumping is the ground (laughs) so the less height you have the more dangerous it is so so I have I I because I'm saying this because I agree with you I was I was waiting for that and we were like two hours in and I was like okay we still have more story to go because i haven't seen that happen yet mm-hmm. and then it happened and i was like okay and i had to remind myself in the middle of it of watching it that this is tom cruise doing this and this is very dangerous like i had to remind myself that this is dangerous because i don't know about you know i've never cliffed on, jumped so i don't you know i had to remind myself of what i knew the, how dangerous it actually was in order to be like <gasps> You know, when the when you don't see the parachute open, you know, and you're think you're just waiting for it. I did like that they cut out all the sound. Yeah. You know, it jumped and just and then it cuts and you hear the wind and everything and all that stuff. So um I did like that, but I agree with you that it was a little lackluster. And I think it was because it's like a it's like the trailer effect where it's like, you know, knowing you know, watching the behind the scenes of that stunt killed the stunt for me. You know, if I would have just seen it happen on the screen, you know, like if 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 the if the trailer or not the trailer, if a lot of behind the scenes was how that that car uh, crash happened and how they filmed that car crash that you said was the most important or impactful moment in the film, uh, you wouldn't have had that moment. Yeah, because you would have been I mean, maybe you would have because it was so quick, yeah. but you would have it would have been different. And I feel like it's the same thing for that stunt, which was the biggest stunt of the whole film, you know? So, Easily. yeah, I, I I agree with you on that front. Well said. I'll dive into some of the the story and writing, which is the bulk of my my stuff. I My my other thought, you said they cut out all the silence. I watched this twice. In my second viewing, uh, the gentleman to my right used that silence as an opportunity uh, to voice his thoughts. <laughs> oh, like, God. He's like, finally, uh, everyone can shut up so they can hear me. <laughs> like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people behind me were talking and they and I was just, oh my gosh, what did what he say? Did he say something? Uh, yeah, he he said you know, it was to to be fair, it was incredibly important. He said, "That's insane." <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Oh my gosh. Uh, I'm going to make a note of that. Everyone shut the hell up <laughs> in the, the theater, especially when it's quiet. Right. Um, and so starting writing one thing I liked, um, and I felt like this was just the way to go. I, I'm sure there's other ways to do it, but this is just the way to do it, which is the way they transition from Russian into English. 
right? This is very, to me, it's a callback to the Hunt for Red October, right? The opening shot of Hunt for Red October, it may not actually be as, but it's in like the first 20 seconds, um, is a guy speaking Russian with subtitles. You push into his mouth and it transitions into English. And then suddenly all the Russians are speaking English and it's so good. And here in mission impossible, they're even on a submarine when they do it. And so it felt very intentional. Um, but that's just a great way to, to ease the audience's burden of suspension of disbelief, right? Why are these, are they supposed to be Russian because they're all speaking English? Uh, and instead like, well, we start in Russian, you read, you know, two or three lines of dialogue and, and subtitles. And then that's it. Then we move in where we get it. These are Russian guys. Uh, we're just hearing English. And so I, I, I love that style of getting us out uh, in a way, because if you're reading subtitles in this kind of sequence, you might miss some of the visual language that they're, they're trying to show you with, with the AI. Um, and so, yeah, from there, a lot of stuff happens. I guess for the, that scene, right, it's, it's interesting because the AI initiates a fight and then uses their weapons against them, right? It's a false flag of aggression. And now your attack, your aggression becomes your own worst enemy. Um, and that's philosophically interesting. And, and if I can remember later on, I'll, I'll circle back to that. But the first thing that bummed me out was the IMF meta mock humor aspect. Cause we go from that submarine sequence um, and their demise and we move right into this debriefing with the director of national, you know, intelligence, Clapper, uh, and they start. He's he's like, well, who who can handle this kind of thing or whatever? And it's like the IMF, and he's like the International Monetary Fund. They're like, no, 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 that's that's a different IMF. This is our in-house. This is the uh, the Impossible Mission Force. It's like, is that a real thing? Uh, how does it work? Um, well, you know, if we have something we can't handle, we we, we take it and we drop it off. You drop it off and yeah, and they, they do it. If, if he chooses to accept it, if he chooses to accept it and it's just, why are they being self-deprecating here at the beginning of the movie, making fun of its own premise? Like this isn't that kind of self-aware movie and it's only asking the audience to discover more flaws with this world. And if anything, it almost starts to ask us to root for the AI and the downfall of this community uh, because you're sitting in the worst part of this, you know, intelligence community um, and they're saying all these terrible things, right? Someone mentions like the AI uh, aggression is directed at the world's intelligence community. The truth as we know it. And I'm like, get the F out of here. Um, and it, it's just so frustrating in so many ways. And for me, it really is making me root for the AI. Like, yeah, you're not the truth as anyone knows it, you bunch of assholes. Um, and now I really hope it wins, you know, uh, because... The intelligence community is a farce, a thousand different ways. And so watching all these idiots in a room is making me root against them. Um, and I, you can say, yeah, that's the intention. That's the purpose. Um, but now we're supposed to be coupling them with Ethan. Ethan is supposed to be working with Kittredge, who is in that meeting. He's a part of this team. And so it's all tied together. Um, and ultimately, we're supposed to be with Ethan as he's like, no, we need to destroy it kind of thing, um, which is fine. But the people that you're destroying it to help, we don't like. <laughs> and so why? Uh, and so, yeah, that's part one of Wes's issues of part one of Dead Reckoning. The next one, this is a biggie, is the exposition. It's so lazy. It's so lazy. When we finally catch up with Ethan, right, he's he's getting a, a mission offering if he chooses and it's Kittredge and he's he's telling him about yeah you got to go get Gabriel and you will never forget the death that brought you to us all those years ago Ethan and then we see a flashback yeah and it's just yeah this insert flashback of this ham-fisted backstory for a mission Ethan's being offered uh, about something we don't know or care about and it's just what a, they could have just let Ethan have a flashback um, when hearing Gabriel's name, right, uh, build some questions that get answered later in the film instead of just dumping all the answers right on us with the question itself. Uh, it just it's lazy. It's just spoon feeding the audience a bunch of information. And it's it's not asking anything of the audience to participate in. 
it's just lay back. We're going to dump a bunch of food on your face. You know? Yeah. (laughs) And so throughout the movie though, there's so many exposition dumps. It's endless, right? There's that conference with the director of national intelligence with all the whoever muckety mucks of Intel. And then there's the team meeting before the airport sequence. Um, Then of course the, the key thief herself gets a quick exposition dump. And then there's the post Rome chase debriefing exposition dump. And then there's the white widow party is one big party exposition dump face off, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like the 80 to 90% of all dialogue in this movie is just bald faced, lazy exposition. Like it's gotta be, I, I didn't time it and, and clock it, but I would be very confident at a minimum 80% of all dialogue is just telling you something. Um, right. It's, it, and it's just boring. It's lazy. And it's, Worst of all, even worse than boring and lazy, is that it's forgettable. I forget everything that they say because it's not done in any way to deliver it to make a lasting impact. If someone just shouts directions to you about how to get to Madison Square Garden from downtown Detroit, by the time you get out of Detroit, you forget everything that they're about to tell you. <laughs> like It just isn't good. It's not useful. It's It's the worst of all possible worlds. And then on top of that, and I, I, I lumped this in with lazy exposition, uh, which is there's a megaton of magic teleportation cuts. Like Ethan gets wherever he wants mm-hmm. to go without ever having to earn it. That's right? every that's every single movie like this. You would think, and yet some of the most important parts of the movie, they're still doing that. It's one thing to give him one or two. Like, okay, he's uh-huh. just that good. But eventually you do need to earn it. Like even Indiana Jones yeah. earns a lot of his moments of, of getting ahead of the, the bad guy. Um, yeah, he never true. does. Ethan teleports ahead of the desert caravan, which if there's a time to do it, it's early in the film or one or two uh, meaningless moments. Give us the meaningless moments of escape and that's okay, right? He's teleporting away from the train crash, right? He's, is he cuffed to the wheel? Nope. And they kind of get away with it because there's a humorous cut to the street, right? Where he's awkwardly carrying the steering wheel now. Uh, and it kind of helps forgive the magic trick there. And But then there's like Ethan, Grace, and Paris teleporting away from the falling boxcar. I think you need to earn that one. That's a part of a really big action sequence. And it can't just be, oh, they got magically saved by their enemy. Uh, which is already, you're already pushing it, buddy, <laughs> by letting us get saved unexpectedly from the person who's been trying to uh, kill us the entire film. Um, you can't also get us out of there uh, with a cut. Um, and again, et cetera. Like at some point he does need to earn it um, or, uh, you know, the escape or being a step ahead. We just need to see how's he doing it. Just some of the important time, please. I will say I, I agree on a lot of fronts. The, the the thing that my first worries, worrisome moment, though, wasn't until the desert. I was fine up until then. But that whole desert thing was like it felt like a joke to me almost because what is it, he's laying down with the horse. But he's like 20 feet from them as they walk by. I mean, there's nothing in the desert but dunes. Is he they don't see him. Are you the mercenaries don't see him? Are you kidding me? You know, and then and then when at some point yeah you're right he gets ahead of them and he's laying down looking over a dune and then finally they see him but he's like a hundred yards from them while they're pulling up to the dune that they're looking it's just it it doesn't it didn't make sense at all and then he's riding his horse towards towards her towards those buildings and they're shooting at him with machine guns and they're only like a hundred yards behind him and they're all missing are you kidding me? Like if this is supposed to be real life like that, I was, I was like, uh, <laughs> I remember watching it in my head. I thought, okay, let it go. Just let it go. <laughs> you know, <laughs> in my head, uh, you know, and this is the kind of movie Same. where I feel like I could do that, but yeah. that was my first worrisome moment. Yeah. Same. Like there's so much luck involved because of course, whenever he grabs a gun, he's a one shot, one kill kind of uh, warrior. And it's just hard for me to buy into those moments. I try and I do the same thing that you do, which is this is not that kind of movie. This is this is Mission Impossible. It's, you know, a, a popcorn action flick. But th- it, this is supposed to be like an elite attack force taking out another elite, you know, a, a attack force. And they all just get smoked, you know, and and this whole movie felt like there's just a little too much luck involved. Right. Mm-hmm. 
Ethan hitting the the gunman randomly by parachuting into the train. Okay, right. The jump timing off the train of AI Gabriel, right? Duel that felt like a bridge too far. It just, yeah. And I I get the implication is supposed to be this is how good the AI is. I just in the moment I didn't buy that. I was like, wait, they all need to set the table a little bit differently for that to really work. Um, the the box cars and the piano falling perfectly on cue is is really irritating ethan for the entirety of this film isn't forcing his will on the environment he's just luckily escaping it oh that's a good way to put that so yeah the entirety of this film just felt like ethan wasn't really overcoming he was just Mm -hmm. escaping um and that's that's kind of frustrating and i think a lot of it has to do also with the unmotivated storytelling you didn't see that coming. I in the, in the in the rundown I said motivated, but now I'm saying unmotivated. I didn't, <laughs> Ethan. And so this is I felt like a lot of the storytelling was really unmotivated. I didn't really get the the villain's motivation. He's motivated by what he sees death as a gift, and that's kind of the end of it. Now, to be fair, a lot of Mission Impossible is just bad guys being bad, and that's kind of it. Uh, most of it's usually like money. They just want to get paid and they don't care who gets the nuclear warheads. Now, I thought the last film did a really good job. We covered Fallout. Uh, I thought it did a pretty good job of creating a, a, a villain that had a uh, flawed, but a worldview of how, how what they're doing is going to make an impact on the world in a good way. Flawed, very, very flawed, but it was enough to make me say, okay. Uh, they have a plan and an agenda that makes them out to be the good guy uh, that they're trying to do something that will be beneficial in the long run. Cool. And so, yeah, I didn't get Gabriel's thing. And then they make him to be an idiot. Mm -hmm. Gabriel just flat out announces the location and time of his big plan. Like I'm going to get the key tomorrow on the Orient Express train. That's leaving at three o'clock from Belgium or whatever. Like he just tells everybody what he's going to do tomorrow. And it's like, wait, you want us to stop you? Like, well, this, so, so that, a fetish that thing? <laughs> yeah, that one thing was like, okay, so he believes this so much right. that he doesn't even care. And he's going to, going to tell everybody because he knows it's going to happen. Yeah. And then it, I mean, to be fair, it does. It still does, but it doesn't make him out to be like a smarter villain because as much as you might believe it's going to happen, there's no reason for me to think he should be announcing all his plans because it now gets from AI knows all to uh, this is destiny. And it's like, well, let's not tempt fate here instead. But from a storytelling perspective, it's bad. I think that's more important than justifying and excusing some characters on-screen behavior instead it's just bad storytelling because this instead should have been pointed out by ethan right he should have made a a comment to gabriel like you you're telling us where you, what's going to happen and now gabriel gets to rebut like it is unavoidable right he gets to actually be more over the top about his confidence in ai as opposed to making the audience do all that work for him um that's bad writing and i think the way they try to point this out is so much more muddier and dialoguier than it needs to be. Uh, there's just is a, that a clever, word? no, no, absolutely not. <laughs> if they can get away with whatever they're doing, uh, I expect to hand fist it myself. Right. Uh, and so and the other thing still on Gabriel here, he thinks Paris is going to betray him because Ethan spared her life. Like at what point did this make any sense? Because he also, has his back to her while she's doing all her stuff. If she's going to betray him and he really believes that the last thing you want to do is get stuck on a train with her. Like don't let her get that far. What are you doing? And he's trusting her to do all his dirty work still up until he just randomly decides you're going to betray me. Uh, I, okay. Um, it just doesn't make sense. But then she saves Ethan and says, Gabriel predicted I'd betray him and voila. What are you talking about? No, Gabriel stabbed you and left you for dead. Then you saved Ethan. At best, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. At worst, it's he's an emotional moron who can't read the room. Like she literally just killed two people for you. At what point do you think she's going to now start betraying you? It just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
um yeah great great point <laughs> <laughs> and her like what, what, at first i thought it was going to be a death scene but then it wasn't and then it was i don't yeah, that whole thing reminded me a lot of like like uh, the end of the Dark Knight, like uh, the right. death scene at the end of the Dark Knight film. Uh, uh. <laughs> I was just like, what? And now that's not the actor's fault. That's not. not absolutely not. Yeah. Palm is incredible, does no wrong. Quarry, on the other hand, has, no, has a reckoning <laughs> to do. Sorry, <laughs> I, I'm not stopping anytime soon. Oh my soon. God, here we go. <laughs> and so... Similar, the White Widow's motivation didn't quite line up for me either. She wants, she wants money. She wants friends. She wants to continue her mom's legacy. Why is she selling the key to a doomsday device? That doesn't make sense to me. Like, yeah, I don't know. It just, it just didn't line up because she's so friendly with Lark or whatever his name is supposed to be uh, to her. And I love that she does use that as a as a point against him, right? She, she, as she's been, you know, betraying him or going against him, um, more like is she's pointing out to him that she doesn't really know him. Therefore she's not really a friend. That's a decent use of that, but her as her own entity, her own person doesn't make a lot of sense in this world anymore for me. She's gone from being an information broker to her death dealer. Um, and that I, it does, does not compute, um, AI. Um, and so, Yes. Again, I'm not done. <laughs> okay. I got more corn in the tank, probably. And so there's a lot of inconsequential sequences throughout the film that also feel unmotivated, right? All the chases and getaways seem to ultimately be meaningless. Grace at the airport, you know, is doing this cat and mouse thing with Ethan and she gets away, gets to Rome and immediately gets nabbed by Ethan. So we spend a fair amount of time on the whole airport thing. And she had a nice getaway only to just immediately end up with him anyway. Okay. Um, and then there's this huge chase sequence through Rome, right? Paris recklessly trying to get Grace. And Grace escapes again. And then immediately in the next scene, it lands with Gabriel anyway at the widow's party. All right. Now you could say all of this is kind of this cat and mouse theater to establish Grace as being worthy of being on the team. She really never does anything other than simple thievery. Ethan does everything else. And when it really counts at the end, she freezes, right, in the boxcar. Now, that's understandable for someone in that situation that is not accustomed to that situation. But ultimately, it's not also a good selling point for her being on the IMF. And so they kind of need to pick their lane here. Is this all kind of theatrics to get her to be a part of the team? And if so, I don't really understand the swap. For her and Ilsa, it just it, it's not even a wash. It's a downgrade. Ilsa is like a certified badass spy killer uh, who can do literally anything. And, and Grace is really good at taking things off of people. Okay. Like that's it's something, but it's nothing that literally anyone else on the team can do. I bet Benji could do that. And so it's just, I, yeah, I don't, I don't get the whole thing with her. It's just kind of an excuse to introduce a new character and, and that's it. And it's inconsequential uh, is again, my big thing. And so throughout this movie though, I think there's the big Achilles heel for me is that there's no mystery. There's no sense of discovery and even worse, there's no philosophical stakes. This is just an endless justification for action scenes with shoehorned emotional stakes, right? Grace does not deserve to be on the team. And instead of killing Ilsa, they should have killed Benji or Luther instead of, of her. Um, and that way we really start to feel like, oh, this movie counts. This, this series, whatever happens between part one and part two, it matters uh, because they killed one of the core members of the team. Ilsa was never a core member of the team. She was a love interest that we had a love-hate relationship with in previous movies. Like She was always a sketchy one. We didn't really know what Ilsa was up to, what her motivation truly was, and that made her interesting. And now you've just kind of killed a question mark. That's not good. You need to kill a check mark. Like Luther and Benji, we know what the hell they're about. Kill one of them, and now... We have it. We're introducing a new chaotic element into the franchise um, that that makes us lean forward. Like we don't know what's going to happen next and who could go next. That's what you want out of a wrap up. And 
I'm assuming this part one and part two is a wrap up of, of this series. Uh, if not, I, mean, then, I think we have to assume that, right? Right. Like he can't go until he's 70. Can he? I mean, I mean, yes, he can, he but can. that's not the point. The <laughs> point is that right. why have a part one and part two? Yeah. That's the point. That is the point. And so, yeah, I think instead, um, one, Ilsa's death should have, you know, carried more meaning than it did. Ultimately, its meaning was it let Grace live. Someone that we don't know and don't really care about other than it's Haley Atwell. Like anything apart from Haley Atwell, we just don't care about. Yeah. I think what they could have done, right? All of this exposition and motivation could have been handled with more mystery and more demonstrations. Like the opening sequence was good because it's setting the table for what this AI is capable of. Use more of that to expand on what the AI is really doing. And instead it's kind of these little cute sequences of it's it's impersonating Benji and it's taking over their communications. Okay. Like, could it have been doing all of this this entire time? Like, this feels like a very lazy way for the AI to operate. And ultimately, it could have crashed the plane that Ethan went on to get to Rome in the first... Like, in a thousand other ways, the AI is more dangerous than what they're letting on. And instead, they should have been making us work for every one of these sequences. Like, getting to Rome could have been a sequence. Not just being there and escaping you know, uh, the henchmen. And so the opening of the submarine, great demonstration. There's a mystery to unravel in there. Instead, they spend 10 minutes explaining it in the next scene, which is boring. (laughs) What are we doing? Um, Another approach is to have Gabriel acting as the villain with an unknown motive. And now we get to have a big reveal is that he's beholden to a rogue AI and by God, if they say rogue one more time, <laughs> I'm going rogue and killing the IMF myself. Um, now, granted, this reveal still isn't ama- as amazing um, just because it'll still feel a little bit cheap and a little played and predictable, right? The big reveal is a, is a robot. Okay, amazing. But instead of making that this real grandiose thing, instead, you could tip your hat earlier on with Benji and Luther maybe debating about it, being in an AI and arguing about the merits and the drawbacks, right? Mm. Debating about it uh, being an AI could also be happening with Ethan and Kittredge, right? Building stakes and arguing about that as well. And now it doesn't become this big flourish that you're, you, the audience feels shocked by. Instead, they're thinking about what are the implications? What are the philosophical implications of using an AI, And how is it going to be used now? And now you've set the table for something that we were already expecting because you're hinting at it the whole way through. And more importantly, you're wondering about what does this this mean for Ethan and his team and Kittredge and his team? Because now we're at loggerheads. We have a real uh, conflict that's been brewing this whole time. And instead, it's just Ethan running around footloose on behalf of Kittredge and it doesn't make any sense. There's no real conflict in this movie whatsoever. It's, it's some kind of revenge vendetta between Ethan and Gabriel for something that I don't even understand in the first place. There's no emotional stakes. There's no philosophical stakes. uh, And there's no sense of interest and intrigue for the audience. There's no betrayal, right? No one really betrays anyone other than the bad guy betraying himself for stupid reasons. We already covered. Um, Yeah. This is just a miserable failure um, because I, I conceptually look AI as a bad guy. I get it. There's lots of AI films already and those are all great, right? If you want to go do whatever ex machina, even artificial intelligence um, and a thousand others, even in recent years and this, they just really magicked on to the timing of it you know, over the last six to eight months, we've been seeing so much about chat GBT and mm-hmm. artificial intelligence. Um, we just over the last two months, we've had two strikes that have in part issues with the use of AI. And so this was a magically timed movie that he could not have predicted. And yet there's absolutely nothing interesting being said about AI, right? Why is this story necessary? What conversation is it bringing to the table? I think it could have a lot of interesting conversations, right? An AI weapon being turned against its creators? Very cool, potentially. 
should to me, whenever I start thinking about this conversation, it's saying, should the intelligence community fold up? Because if what they're doing is going to bring about the downfall of all of society, maybe what they're doing isn't ultimately a good thing or a necessary thing anymore. Like we've, we've gotten to the point where governments are, are doing largely, you know, really decent things. If, if the intelligence community would stay out of it, if they'd stop usurping people's choices and, you know, democracies. And so this seems like a really good opportunity for this franchise to invoke some introspection about the intelligence community itself. Instead of just fighting against bad actors, they should be thinking about what's our part to play in all this. Are we as a society and a uh, worldwide community evolving away from the need of such an invasive apparatus as the Intel community? How would an elite team think about their part with such an uncontrollable weapon, right? How does Ethan think about the part he's playing in this? How does Kittredge think about the part he's playing in this? We really don't know. It's just, this is all necessary, you know, evils that we do. We're the, the arbiter of truth, to paraphrase what they were saying in the, in the beginning. And having that kind of an argument is a really great way to roll out exposition, right? Ethan versus Kittredge instead of Ethan versus Gabriel. Mm -hmm. Because now all the exposition comes through conflict. And now we're, we're beginning to understand what are the real stakes of this world. Now, maybe all of this is coming in part two, but I, I suspect whatever happens in part two will just mean that part one could have been condensed into like a 20 to 30 minute, you know, sequence and tacked on to part two. And so nothing to my eyeball really happened interesting in, in, in part one. So yeah, that's, those are my thoughts. Wow. <laughs> Got a lot going on. Uh, no, I, I mean, I agree. And it, I think it's, you can shut your brain off and watch it as a film where, you know, kind of a lot happens, but nothing really does at the same time. But, you know, it's a good, it's a good way to spend a couple of hours to like, you know, just go to the, to the movies and, and be, wowed in some ways but we've had that before you know um we've had action films before and and we've watched tom cruise do action before and i think that like in this case it was more about watching tom cruise do stunts than it was about watching a story you know um, and as long as you know that that's what you're gonna get yeah you know then then you could you could enjoy it but if you're looking for a substantive story, you know, you're definitely not going to get it. And it, I think, I think you're right when you said that they kind of lucked out with the whole AI thing, because obviously they made this film, you know, two years ago or something. Right. They were working yeah. on it way before, you know, chat GPT. I mean, we've had AI for a while. What we call, what we call AI, you know, is, I mean, it's not really AI. Like it is, but, it, you know, but we didn't have any of that when they were making this film. So I think that that was a good luck of the draw for them, or maybe they saw it coming and I'll, we can give them the, the, uh, the props that, Oh no, we, they saw this coming. And so, you know, but even then, if they didn't know what AI would look like, you know, in 2023, when the movie came out, they could, the whole point of it is to go farther than what you think it might be. Right. And I feel like, like you're right you're, you're totally right when you talk about well if he's flying on a plane from here to there i mean the ai should know that and crash the plane absolutely it boom done you know uh like it, they could go to that extreme and then there's a stunt right there plane going down and ethan has to jump out of a plane without a parachute how is he going to survive you know what i mean there's a stunt <laughs> so anyway i I can I can see those flaws for sure. That very well said, story wise, about all that stuff. And my frustration really is, they didn't have to change a lot in order to make this a much more interesting, engaging film for the audience. And imagine having something with these action sequences where people walk out talking about the story. Mm -hmm. You've got a mega blockbuster on your hand, and they still do. But that's just because of the reasons that you're you, you you're said. right. It's like, but this thing has legs for decades. Um, if you can make people think on, on yeah. the exit, they go in for the action and they walk away and just, whoa, how do I feel about X, Y, Z? That's much more interesting. 
yeah anyway uh final thoughts uh and and yeah no i don't have anything else i think you said it all really well i was uh you know uh entertained yet let down at the same time yeah so they they set a really good standard with fallout and that's where where i'm holding them to now like that's such a fun movie with something Mm -hmm uh fun uh fun going on within the conversation of the film that was the one with cavill right and the halo jump okay yeah all right Um, yeah (laughs) so what are you going to recommend this week uh this week i'm going to recommend because i can't i just can't get enough of it it might be boring to some people but to me it's definitely not i'm going to recommend the tour de france Ah. um which is i think stage 15 or something now so it's like three quarters of the way done but just watching these guys turn themselves inside out it's like super amazing and and honestly a lot of fun and granted some of the stages are like four and a half hours long so you know of just people riding their bicycles so it could be boring but um when you understand it and you understand the tactics it's 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 incredible so yeah nice i'm gonna recommend uh lust caution i watched it last night for the first time um and if you want a spy thriller with something to say my god um, now it's a very graphic movie, um, sexually, and that's generally what it's known for. God, Ang Lee is on a different planet and I get why, you know, I've seen some of his other films for sure. And there, he, he knows how to do drama. This is a different planet. I love watching period pieces, um, especially like in Asia. Uh, th- there's so many wild things happening in those countries during like the, from the, 1900s through the 40s like it's really fascinating to see what their culture was going through and then the visual styles um it's just beautiful film uh gorgeous the lighting is to die for yeah so stay tuned for next week where we will look at which one (laughs) uh oh you're asking Jessica because uh oh oh okay cool yes right we have another week <laughs> yeah, in between of, yeah. i thought we were doing yeah yeah it's a, uh master and commander nice where we will look at master and commander um <laughs> so stay tuned for that uh yeah and if you're enjoying the show don't forget subscribe drop us a review leave us a note if there's something you want us to cover uh we'll or the kind of things you find interesting like we we like to hear it all. And if you want to comment on this episode in particular, you can do that at thepestlepodcast.com slash Mission Impossible DR1. And our quote of the day is from Alex Garland. Sequels are generally done in a rush. They're done with a sense of urgency. Uh, the first time, you spend a long time de- developing to get it over the line. The second time, you don't. Your expectations are different and your motivations are different. I mean, that's with with not just films, but with music and with pretty much anything second albums you know really tell the tale of what a band is going to do and i think it's definitely the case for films too yeah yeah that's alex garland is my favorite screenwriter uh speaking of ex machina and a bunch of other stuff you know 20 days later the beach and not to say that everything he does is amazing that's everyone you know takes a shot and misses i'm okay with that I just like his approach to thinking about sequels. And it's like Todd said, like we're, we're aware that there's a slump when you're going into the second film uh, or a sequel of any kind. And the time that you can take, it's hard to know when a project is ready. And sometimes it's about meeting a deadline. That's when you should step back. When it's about meeting a deadline, you're doing it wrong. It's just probably a good rule of thumb. Not every time, but a lot of times. Um, and so I think that's it says a lot about what I think went wrong uh, for this film. Just rushing, just saying, oh, working backwards, right? Thinking too much about the action and not enough about the, the why. If you can do both of those things, man, you're just you're you're going to be doing something really special. And uh, I thought, you know, there's just a missed opportunity spend time developing you know don't think about getting it over the line don't think about the payoff and try your best not to think about tom cruise's biological clock uh, <laughs> ticking off the cliff because uh, that's probably also a big motivation there's five years between this one and the last film and so at his age i'm sure it starts to really get like crap my my bones are creaking 
based on all the stuff he's putting it through. I don't think on average being 60 is any kind of, you know, death sentence at all. But I'm sure whenever you're doing the kind of life that he's living, uh, it probably has a limit and you're probably starting to wear on yourself a bit. And so, yeah. Anyway. Well, thank you guys for joining us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you, I mean, maybe you agreed with us. Maybe you didn't. Let us know what you think. Um, And share us with your friends. Subscribe, review, all that good stuff that all helps, you know, uh, that it helps us. um, And if there's a film that you want to hear us pick apart, please let us know. Maybe we'll cover it one day. Uh, Until next week, I'm Todd. I'm Wes. Go watch some movies.